Welcome in. This is episode 9 of the Baseball Never Sleeps podcast. I'm co-host Simon Farber, along with me, as always, my partner, Nick Lanciani. And Nick, we've got it through nine episodes. This is pretty exciting and definitely a lot further than we expected when we got this thing started. And specifically, the ninth episode was particularly very fun and enjoyable with Brewers TV broadcaster Brian Anderson. He had a lot of interesting stories about how his career started up, and he's really had a padded resume throughout his lifetime. Yeah, speaking with Brian was a lot of fun. We really appreciate him taking the time to talk with us. All right, let's get to the interview. We are very excited to welcome Milwaukee Brewers broadcaster Brian Anderson onto the show. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, man, my pleasure to be here. How are you guys doing? Are you social distancing right now? Yeah, yes, we're currently we on a FaceTime call right now. <laughs> good, good job, man. Way to do your part. So a lot of players are staying ready. They're hitting or they're uh, playing video games even to to keep the baseball going. What are you doing to keep your broadcast skills ready to go? Man, I've been on every podcast, I think, across America. <laughs> yours. So I've, um, I have time to do that. I get a lot of requests, you know, throughout the year. And um, I'm always uh, willing to do them, but usually there's not enough time in the schedule with all the sports and all the games that I do. So this has actually been great to, to listen into a bunch of young broadcasters who have uh, gone out and put themselves on the plank like you guys to, to uh, put something out there to entertain. And uh, it's been really good for me, good medicine to listen to everybody and so much talent around the country. And um, you guys are in that group. So, that's what I've been doing. A bunch of interviews, a bunch of podcasts, Zoom chats, Zoom interviews. Uh, just interviewed CC Sabathia for the Brewers via Zoom yesterday. So that's going to be something that'll be published here in the next uh, week or two. We're gonna we're gonna put that together with um, a telecast of uh, replay of the game 162 from 2008. So we're trying to do a few things on our own to entertain, but. Now, when I'm not doing that, we're um, doing as much as we can to help out young broadcasters. Uh, with no live sports going on, have you been watching a lot of the reruns from uh, previous years? You know, I haven't been able to totally get into the replays that I'm a part of, but I've been totally into the replays from the 80s. And for a lot of reasons, number one, I was still in high school or middle school back in those days. And I'm I'm making the connection of, like, where I was then, you know, 1982, I was 11. And 1987, I was a junior in high school. And, uh, watching these games kind of just kind of run on the parallel tracks of where I was back then and what I thought about Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I grew up in Texas, so believe me, Milwaukee, Wisconsin was the last thing on my mind. And I didn't know anything about it. So it was just, it's been really interesting to, you know, I've seen the highlights and we've covered a lot of those games and those the highlights from those games during my 14 years here uh, but to actually watch a broadcast and the regular ebb and flow and just even like the the promos and you know the businesses that were going then and that were supporting the team and the fact that Winston which is a cigarette company was the big sponsor on the scoreboard uh, those little nuances have been really fascinating for me to watch and listen. Of course, just being able to see guys like Raleigh Fingers and Robin Young and Cecil Cooper and Gantner at, at a young age, because I know him now 
as older men that I get to talk to all the time, but to see them in their prime, uh, it's been really entertaining for me. I've enjoyed it. You talked about your younger days. How did you get the aspiration to become a sportscaster? Well, I was a player. I played uh, high school football in Texas and baseball and uh, had a choice to go to college to play either sport in small college level. Um, And I chose baseball. I was actually a scholarship athlete, and I played NAIA baseball and always thought I wanted to play and was hoping I could play professionally. My older brother uh, was at that time in the minor leagues and would ultimately get to the big leagues with the Cincinnati Reds. So I always had it in my mind that I wanted to be in that wheel and maybe I was good enough if I work hard enough. Um, probably my sophomore year in college, I realized maybe I'm not as skilled. I was a starter and I, I was a catcher. And I, you know, I, I was the number one catcher on our team, but um, I wasn't good enough to play professionally. And I, I kind of realized that as I was starting my junior year in fall ball and then into the season, like, man, I better come up with a backup plan. I'm graduating soon in two years. And so that's really, I'd always called games, believe it or not. Uh, when I was in the dugout or if I, I also refereed, I took a referee class in college actually. And our head baseball coach ran all the referees. Uh, this is a long story to make this point, but he used to hire us to be referees for like junior high games and you know middle school football games and baseball and whatever. But I, I remember like refereeing and I would in my mind or sometimes even verbally like call play by play. Here's a handoff right side. And, so, and I started doing that all the time just in the dugout when I was playing and behind the plate if I was catching. We play inter squads and all my teammates were like, hey, call some play by play. And so it got really good feedback and I, I was – I was like, yeah, I'll just keep doing this. And I did that all through college in my, my playing days. And I, when I wasn't playing, if I was on the bench for like the second game of a doubleheader, I'd never caught. I always caught the first one. So the second game, I'd totally do play-by-play play of the game and would just make up these crazy stories. And everybody seemed to like it. So that was an easy transition for me when I said, what do I want to do next? After my playing days and my collegiate days, um, we shared the facility with the double A team at that time, my college and the double A team in the Texas league that the Dodgers ran Los Angeles Dodgers. So I ended up making good friends with them and they hired me right away. And that's kind of how it all, how it all unfolded. It wasn't like a clear decision. I want to be a broadcaster. It was like, Oh, well they have a job. And I probably had five jobs at the time, just random odd jobs. And that's one of them. And that's the one that kind of took off. So before we get into baseball play-by-play, you actually spent eight seasons as the Spurs sideline reporter, and that's a very different job than calling a game. But how awesome was that, especially considering they were one of the best teams in the NBA during that stretch, I believe three championships? Yeah, yeah. I was there for the first four. I uh, didn't finish the season when they won their fourth, but they actually sent me a watch for being a part of oh, That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, four of the five that they've won, I, I was a part of. I left in January of uh, 2007 to come to Milwaukee to prepare for the Brewers season. but And that was a championship year for the Spurs. But uh, I mentioned all the odd jobs that I had. One of those jobs when I was in college was as a handheld cameraman and kind of like a behind-the-scenes tech op. So I did audio and graphics and camera and whatever. I logged tapes. I was a runner. And I worked for the Spurs. 
And so I got hired by the Spurs at first as an intern and then as, you know, a guy to do all these odd jobs and uh, do the tech work. And um, I did that from my junior year of college um, all the way through and maintain that job even after I graduated as kind of a side hustle uh, doing games. So I was doing handheld camera. And so I did – I made the transition as I was doing minor league baseball on the radio for half the year doing the tech jobs the other half of the year. But I was really angling to try to get on the air with the Spurs that whole time. And finally they gave me a chance in 99, which was the first championship year. And uh, so that's when I was able to quit all the tech jobs and go full-time announcer, minor league baseball for the summer months, and then Spurs sideline reporter. So, yes, I was on the air with the Spurs for eight years, but I had been with them four years prior to that. So I spent 12 years. Uh, with San Antonio and that organization and knew them really well. and They know me and I still love those people. And the same guy that hired me is still in the job as the VP of broadcasting now. So one of my great mentors. Um, and so the job's a lot different. You know, I was used to play by play, but I was just hungry to get on the air and try to make a living. You know, the, the game checks were really good to be an, an on-air personality and so I was, I, whatever, like when I heard what it paid, I was like, I'll do it. I had no experience, <laughs> um, but just figured it out. You know, I'd done a lot of writing. I, w- I was writing a newsletter at the time uh, consistently. I had a journalism background. So I just kind of applied a lot of that into these small snippets, these reports that you have to do. And it's a, it's a medium that, you know, Sophia Minard is great for us and has won multiple regional Emmys for her work. But it is a different job. It's a thankless job. You come up with all this information, and everybody seems to use it before you can get to it because you're kind of the one, you're the intrepid reporter who's gathering all the data and presenting it to the crew. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of a beat down in that regard, but uh, it was great for me to, to be a part of that group and, you know, the culture of the Spurs as they were changing, and I had a really good relationship with Greg Popovich, even though he was hard on me on the air, like when I did interviews with him, uh, everything you see now with pop, that was all going on with me before it was even funny. Uh, before <laughs> it was cool and uh, people were interested in it. He was terrorizing me. And so matter of fact, Mike Budenholzer, who's the head coach of the Bucks, was part of that staff. He was an assistant. He was the video coordinator when I was a cameraman. So I've known Bud for 25 years going back to my college days. So it's created a lot of contacts and, certainly uh, put me, you know, in the NBA, which gave me that balance I needed to start to go on and do more play-by-play jobs elsewhere. After moving from the NBA and making your way to the Brewers, how hard was it to assimilate to a new team? It wasn't so much the team. I mean, I'd been around professional baseball really, you know, my entire adult life. I'd already had nine years of minor league baseball. So, and my brother played and, you know, is a scout now and was a scout then so it wasn't like the the schedule the assimilation into the culture of the game when to you know when to talk to a player a coach a manager when to get lost like those things were pretty innate in me it was more just the the fan base you know the 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 different climate just like being getting through the winter you know was a real challenge I, i'm from texas i'd never experience that kind of cold and snow and my first year here it snowed 100 inches that year it was like a 50-year record wow so i was like 
what in the world did I get myself into? It's like the Discovery Channel outside every day. Um, so that was like a big piece of it, you know, and then getting my family acclimated, getting my daughter transferred into school. She was in second grade at the time. That was the challenge. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety on my end, like, is, is this the right move? Am I the right person for this job? Are they going to like me here? Do they, you know, are they going to like my call? Because I'm a little different, you know. I don't, you know, I'm not like an orthodox broadcaster. You know, I do things a little differently, more expressive, probably fewer statistics, more storytelling. Um, and so I was worried about all of that. And, you know, there's anxiety that goes with that. Um, but really just the, the actual living part and leaving all of my family. I'm a sixth-generation Texan. So leaving everybody I know, all my, my wife's family, my family, you know, all of our built-in babysitters <laughs> uh, to come up here. And so the first year was really tough, but we grew to love it, and, and we'd never leave. I've had plenty of chances to leave since, and we've always decided to stay because this is our home and my 14th year, and I can't imagine living anywhere else now. Well, hopefully that first year anxiety has worn off because this past year was my first in Wisconsin as a freshman at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I have to say, watching Brewers broadcasts on a nightly basis, it's really an enjoyable listen. But you have been assigned to a bunch of Brewers playoff games with TBS. How do you handle changing your broadcast style from a local kind of appeal to more of a national broadcast where you have to be just a little bit more less or less biased, I should say? Yeah, I mean, it's a neutral broadcast. So really, the, what I tell people about that, it's an easy conversion. Because when you're in the moment, when you're in the game, you don't think about, there's no fandom at all. I mean, I, I did the Brewers twice in the postseason. I love the Brewers. It's part of my organization. They're part of my family. But when you're doing the game, especially as a play-by-play announcer, you're not thinking about any of that. You're thinking about this play, this pitch, this call, getting to the next thing. And so... In a Brewers telecast, it's simply from a Brewers lens. So, you know, I, I try to be fair to everybody, including the opposing team. Um, and I want to make sure I celebrate success of the other team to a certain degree. So, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, if the Brewers hit a walk-off home run and I give it a 10 call and I'm as loud as I can be and I'm excited as I can be, if the Cardinals hit a walk-off home run against the Brewers on a local broadcast, I'm not going to punch that to a 10 call. I'm going to give that about a 6 because the the Brewers just lost the game. So everything's from the Brewers' lens, you know, every all the health-related issues and the medical stuff and who's available, who's not, the news of it. doesn't mean we don't give news from the other team. It's just not to the depth of the Brewers. It's all from a Brewers' lens. On a national broadcast, you celebrate success for both teams. Like some guys will go more critical. They'll be more critical on both teams. I don't do that. I'm, I'm, I come from the Vin Scully school, so I'm not, I'm not really – being a critic is not my thing. My analyst can be and should be. I celebrate success. So I'm going to – on a national game, I'm going to celebrate an Albert Pujols home run against the Brewers just as much – as a Ryan Braun home run against the Cardinals. And that rubs people the wrong way a lot, especially Brewers fans who have been listening to me call Brewers games all year. Um, But that's just the way it is. And so, you know, to that person in that moment, 
even calling a Wisconsin basketball game in the NCAA tournament, you know, if they, when another team has success against the Badgers, of course, I, I love the Badgers. I, I want success for them, but it's also a very important moment for that player or that team, the other team. And so I want to try to match that with the appropriate number, meaning voice, volume, pitch, tone. So it's pretty easy, honestly. You just you know what it means to that person, even if it's against the team that you call all year. And so that's kind of the mode you get into when you do a national broadcast. You talked about the different lenses you apply to both national stage and local stage, but before the first pitch is even thrown, what does the typical game prep look like for you personally? Well, it's always it's it's omnipresent. I mean, it 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 goes all the time. You're always reading, and even now when there are no games, and I know there are going to be no games for a while, I'm constantly catching up on the leagues, the teams, and you know, what's going on in the game, you're reading every day. It's just part of what I do. It's part of what I enjoy, actually. I would have been doing it anyway, even if I wasn't getting paid to do it. Um, but a typical baseball game day is I take the mornings for myself. So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll spend time with my family. I'll get a workout in, try to have like a breakfast or a brunch with my wife. And if my daughter's home and like that's family time and that's kind of me time. And then starting about one o'clock, you know, I'll I'll start prepping for the game. I you know usually start with the with both starting pitchers, and then reading about the other team, trying to dial in on what their storylines are, and then preparing for my team. Like you know whatever the news of the day is, we always have a conference call. Uh, usually it's 10 a.m. and it's about uh, 15 20 minutes. We just kind of all get together and decide where we're headed, knowing that it might change, but we, we get together. So we have an understanding. And then I try to all my have all my prep done and everything, like my what I call my book work done, which is notes. I keep them on the notes section of my iPad. I just type them up, little nuggets and notes, and copy and paste if it's from an article and, you know, get the, the writer's name, make sure I credit that person. And I try to have all that done by the time I leave for the ballpark, which is about 3.30 for a 7 o'clock game. And I get to the field at 4. And that starts phase two, which is more, you know, field work and the personal side, like talking to the manager. I always go over to the other manager and chat with him and listening to his his media scrum to see what's going on with the other team, um, knowing that Rock has our team covered and Sophia has all the news from our team. So we kind of – divide and conquer and so then i just try to talk to players and gather you know a little info here or there talk to the other broadcasters that's that window from four to six and then i usually eat eat a meal real quick and on the air at six thirty for a game hit and then on the air at seven for the game so rinse and repeat that's basically how it how it works so when a starting pitcher gets scratched like five ten minutes before the game, is that no, how, how do you recover? <laughs> yeah, well, how do you you you, uh, you know like going to websites like Baseball Reference and Fangraphs and the Baseball Cube? I mean, those are huge for me. Uh, we have our own statistical system that we can use. It's more for graphics, but you know those things can really help you as well. Um, and then old school media guide. You know, you break out the media guide that the teams still produce and try to get just some general, you know, thoughts or an understanding of who 
who's pitching, especially if it's somebody we don't know or maybe he's making his debut. Um, and then you run over there to the other broadcasters, uh, the other broadcast team, and get information from them. So, yep, it's a bit of a scramble, but that, that can be fun too sometimes. As mentioned earlier, you, you talked about how there's that personal side that you get to talk with a lot of the players. Is there a player currently or in the past that you've really enjoyed talking to or interviewing? Well, I have two of my favorites, and I'm I'm public about it because I just love them, and I think the way they handled everything were was so perfect. Um, and that would be Tim Duncan with the Spurs, who's now in the Hall of Fame. We call him Hall of Famer Tim Duncan now as of a couple of weeks ago. And CC Sabathia with the Brewers. And I have a lot of guys I love and respect, and, uh, you know, Christian Yelich is on that list for sure. I don't know him. I've only been around him two years, so I don't know him like I know those other two, but um, you know, uh, those are guys that I just love being around and talking shop with. And CC and I used to talk all the time, even on days he would pitch. He was one of those guys that didn't do the silent treatment on his start days. And we would just talk about just sports psychology, even, you know, like the clutch gene and what makes a guy tick and like the failure. He was just such a really interesting guy to talk to. And Tim Duncan's the same way, very soft spoken, but when you could get it, get him engaged and, uh, the way he just – he never approached anything like a superstar, even though he was. Um, he he was inclusive. He made sure people felt comfortable. and um, CC was the same way. So those would be my top two. But I have a lot of guys that I, I respect. Anybody who makes it to this level um, has a story and a great survival story to get to this point. So on the flip side, there's always athletes that are going to be a little bit more difficult. I don't know if you want to you know, rat anybody out by name, but how do you handle an interview process over the course of a year when somebody is giving you a harder time and it's a little tougher to do your job? Well, I mean, those are there are always guys like that, but I try to go a little deeper and understand why. I mean, Matt Garza was one of those guys that was frustrating for all of us. And, you know, we, you couldn't get to know him. He, he wouldn't let you know him. He you'd set up an interview and he was late, you know, he, and he did it on purpose. He, he just, he wanted you to feel that anxiety that he's doing you a favor. And, and, and a lot of, and he upset a lot of people about it and me too at times, but at the same time, you know, I, I really worked hard to try to understand him better and try to figure out why he was that way. You know, and his background is he's an incredible survival story. And I used to tell him like, man, you, you don't have to have this coat of armor with me. Um, and he didn't change, but I, you know, I try to understand that. So I've never really been too critical on players. There've been players that have come to me. Jeff Supon was one of those guys that would, if he didn't like what you said on the air, or if he thought you were off the mark, he would, he would challenge you on it. And that's fine. But I, you know, a lot of times it wasn't accurate. You know, he was getting third hand information. I remember one time he was really upset that uh, we had a graphic on a scouting report that said he was a nibbler, like a, you know, a nibbler guy who worked on the edges. And he was really upset by that. I don't know why, cause that's what he was, but he, that made him furious. <laughs> and he, he approached us on it and was really upset. And it took us a minute. Like, I don't remember saying that. I don't remember using that graphic. And then we remembered that, wait, that was the Cincinnati Reds broadcast. We weren't even on the air that day. And so, you know, I think someone in his family had told him, that, yeah, I saw that on television, and he immediately came to us. We didn't even broadcast that day. So th- those are things that drive me crazy. And, you know, we called him on it, and he called us out on some things too. And so, 
that's okay. I mean, it's all part of it. I try to understand the personalities of players and the way you deal with it is to respect them and respect their space. They don't owe you anything. If they don't want to talk, if they want to <clears throat> be bristly, that's the choice that they make. It doesn't mean I can't report it that way. It just means that that's what, what they've chosen. Everybody has a choice. And so if that's what they've chosen, I always assume there's probably a good reason for that. There's probably a lot of armor that's been built for a trauma in the past or something that's happened to him in the past. I don't know. But I usually don't even take the time to find out at that point if if they're not going to, you know, offer us any time. Or, you know, I don't want to do an interview full of cliches, so I'll do them a few times. If it doesn't get any better and we can't break any ground with a player, then I just won't do them anymore because it's not, fans don't want to see it. It's, you're getting no info. You're not feeling like you're connected or, or learning more about this player. So it really, there's, it's a waste of time. A little earlier, you mentioned how you've been rewatching a lot of those old 80s and 90s games. But have, have there been times where you've rewatched your own broadcast and done a little self critique? Yeah, I always I do that every day. I don't watch the whole broadcast, but I'll watch segments because uh, I know you as you do games, you know, and like there's a window where that I don't know if that went like I thought or the way I wanted it. Um, and so I'll watch the highlights. I always watch the highlights every day. I've been doing that since I was in the minor leagues um, because I want to hear how the game sounds. If my volume and pitch and tone match the moment, you know, you, I'm constantly thinking on this 10 scale of how to call moments and you want those to match. Like you want the moment to match the, the pitch in your, and tone in your voice. And I'm not hundred percent on that, but you know, as, as the years have gone by, I've gotten better and better making that connection. Like, wow, that was probably a little too much there for that moment. That wasn't that huge of a deal. So I have those conversations with myself all the time. And then there'll be a stretch of a game that I'll just, I'll pop it on and I'll watch probably 10 minutes and say, okay, there's good interaction here. I'm connected to the video, the replay, the director's cuts, you know, as a play-by-play guy. It's a lot of deep technical stuff when you do television from a play-by-play perspective. But those are the things I'm looking for. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm sick or not feeling well, you know, this train keeps moving and I always am, am interested the way when you're sick, the way you sound in your own ears is a lot different than the way you actually sound. And so like if I have bad allergies or I can't get to a certain register in my voice, I'll just listen to see if it's in my head or if that's actually what it sounds like. And, you know, so those kind of things, not, not, I'm not sitting back, you know, it's agonizing still to listen to myself to this day. I've been doing this for 25, 26 years. So it's not that I sit there and go, wow, you're, you're awesome. I really enjoy your broadcast, Brian. You're really entertaining me now. I don't listen to it that way. I listen for specific things and markers uh, that help me know that I'm at least in touch with the moments. So you've been calling baseball for quite a long time. You've probably heard yourself say almost everything possible. But do you have a favorite moment in baseball, just like your average could happen in any game, a favorite moment to call develop? Well, I, I think the most exciting play to call is uh, an inside-the-park home run. And they're rare, but the build-up to those calls. And matter of fact, I, I had an inside-the-park home run in the late 90s when I was in the minor leagues. And that every year I would replace my demo cuts with 
cuts that I thought would were better, right? And that one made it through the years. And it was actually on my demo that I sent the Brewers back in 2006. This it was nine years nine years old at that point, and it was wow. an inside the park home run. And it was just you know those are fun. I mean those are great to call. I remember Prince Fielder had one for the Brewers, and um, who else had one? We had one with uh, Prince Fielder had two that year actually, two inside the park home runs. Uh, so those are fun. Those are fun. I, lo- I love those. Like a triple is a really exciting call. A walk off. It was an exciting call, but I love the backstory, you know, being able to set up a story and like, you know, the major league debuts or the first time a player does a certain thing. Those those are really rewarding to be able to have that backstory prior to the moment. And then all of the news channels and highlights, you know, everybody's running highlights will use that as if it's theirs, even though they heard it from me. That's satisfying. I love doing that and being able to get these stories on the air for these players and then have them deliver in a moment. Like Tyler Saladino hit, hit a grand slam last year, hit two grand slams in back-to-back games. And, you know, what a story that was for him to be able to have that moment. Well, Brian, we ran a little bit long, but we really want to thank you for talking baseball with us today. Uh, last question that we could ask, what are your thoughts on the upcoming season? Do you think we still have a shot of getting a couple of games out there? Oh, yeah. The, the, I think there will be games. I don't know how many or when that's going to happen, but I'm, I'm confident there'll be some sort of a baseball schedule uh, this year. So hopefully if everybody will do what you guys are doing and stay home and, and uh, practice your social distancing, we can get through this a lot faster. (laughs) Yeah. We're all hoping once again, Brian Anderson of the Milwaukee Brewers, Brian, thanks so much. Yeah. My pleasure guys. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Baseball Never Sleeps podcast. On our next episode, Simon and I got the chance to speak with Atlanta Braves relief pitcher Shane Green as he took us through his journey to the big leagues, as well as how he flipped the switch to become an all-star relief pitcher in the 2019 season. You won't want to miss it.